Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. We are your Redwall Read Along podcast, and thanks for tuning in. I'm your co-host Colin, and with me is our esteemed co-host Trevor. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm really excited to be here. So excited for this first episode. So yeah, we are in season one, and this is episode one of Redwall. In this episode, we're going to be having a, a spoiler discussion of book one, The Wall. If you're wondering who we are, be sure to check out episode zero, where you can get to know us a little bit better and then learn more about the format of the show. But as a quick rundown, each episode will have uh, we'll be covering the different books or parts of a book in the Redwall series, and then we'll do a full uh, review uh, of the book along with a great panel of our hosts and friends. Uh, I'm really excited about this first book. How are you feeling about it, Trevor? I mean, I have so many feelings about this book, so I only reread it maybe a couple of years ago. So it's still like reading it almost for the first time. It's so fresh and so fun. Yeah, I, I know what you mean since I, I, I read this just a few years ago and reading it a little bit more recently than you. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of things that I picked up on this reread than I, than I did the first time. It's really funny just how much I think you miss on a first read and like all of the little details that just sneak up on you mm. in those subsequent rereads that really deepen your appreciation for the book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we get started talking about um, that first book, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, what you've been reading. So uh, what are some things that you've been enjoying uh, recently, Trevor? That's kind of a crazy question um, because I, I feel like I'm always reading something. I just got finished with kind of a one-two punch of almost like immaculate classical horror, uh, but they're very modern books. Um, Nestlings by Nat Cassidy is coming out October 31st. Uh, so I just read that and it it reads like if Stephen King wrote Rosemary's Baby, um, it's a very, very interesting book. Uh, lots of horror. It's kind of vampire adjacent, uh, but I absolutely loved it. It really felt like classic 80s era horror. And then I read Schrader's Chord by Scott Leeds, which is also a very interesting 80s era feeling horror novel uh, about some uh, records that can open a portal to the, the realm of the dead. Um, it was a really interesting read. So I think those two books were like the, the recent reads that really stand out to me as pretty spectacular. Yeah, those sound, those sound really cool. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about those, uh, where can someone uh, learn more about it? That's a really good question. So I interviewed Scott Leeds just this past weekend for an episode of my other podcast, Slay House Presents, S-L-E-Y House Presents. Um, Scott was such an awesome guest. We talked a lot about music and art and our passion and appreciation for that art. And then I am set to feature Nat Cassidy, author of Nestlings, uh, a little bit later 
sometime next month. So I meet with him in a couple weeks. I'm very excited for that interview. And if you are interested in hearing those authors talk about their work, Slayhouse Presents is a really cool place to go. Nice. Yeah, those interviews sound like they are uh, are going to be really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm excited that I don't know anything about that book. So I'm really excited to, to hear more about it. And I love your interviews that you get to do with that. Um, for me, outside of Redwall, I've been reading Last Arguments of Kings. Uh, this is the third book in the First Law uh, trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. Very different from Redwall, but this is definitely a series that I've grown to love more and more with each book. I was kind of iffy on how the second book ended, but I'm really excited with this third book and, and the progression of it. I'm about halfway through and really enjoying it. Uh, it's also the start of the Premier League, so I've been really into soccer and just can't <laughs> get enough of it. So uh, unfortunately, one one match a week is enough for me. So I've been catching up on the latest issues of the manga Blue Lock uh, by Muna, Muna Yuki Kaneshiro. Don't really know how to say that, so sorry for the pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but that's a series that I just love. It's it's getting really, really good. And uh, each arc has basically all the kind of traditional uh, manga or anime tropes to it. And it's all based around soccer. It's a really cool series. And um, it's been a good break from Redwall to jump into that and get my soccer fix and get back to the Abbey. So it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I do like incorporating Redwall into kind of my regular like reading diet, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. Just making the the time to revisit these books has been such a joy. And I feel like the demand for reading a Redwall book is pretty low. You know, like mm -hmm. it, it isn't super taxing. It's not like it demands a whole lot from you to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. But there are some things that are kind of taxing to figure out. And we'll, we'll talk more about that <laughs> as we jump into uh, part one, the wall. So uh, what do you think? Should we get started? I think we should. All right, let's jump into it. So book one, the wall opens with chapter one, an introdu introduction to Matthias, Abbot Mortimer, and the legend of Martin the Warrior of Redwall Abbey. If this is your first time reading Redwall, it's really important to know that these characters do resonate throughout many of the later books. They are kind of important figures, especially the legend of Martin the Warrior, which serves as kind of the bedrock, I think, for any Redwall adventure that comes after it. He's the archetype of pretty much any one of these heroic figures. So Matthias is a mouse. He's pretty young. He is quite brave, but also seems to be a little clumsy. I think that Jake's, Brian Jake's, kind of introduces us to Matthias in this chapter in a way that makes us underestimate him. But he's kind of insinuating that it's because Matthias has a little bit of growing up to do, and he's literally trying to fill big shoes. Yeah, that's very apparent in the description of Matthias where uh, his, his sandals, his flip-flops are too big and he's kind of tripping over himself. 
Uh, I think it's really clever that Jake's kind of ends the first uh, first chapter with that little like nod. I, I don't know the best way to describe it, uh, but I thought it was really clever. Like uh, it's a great way to introduce um, the uh, the Martin the Warrior and how Matthias uh, uh, kind of foreshadowing how Matthias stacks up or fills into those shoes. Yeah. So Matthias is a young novice of Redwall Abbey. Um, he is an outsider. Uh, that's pretty important to his character. He was not originally a Redwall mouse. He was kind of adopted into this society of Redwall that all live in the Abbey and the Abbey grounds. Abbot Mortimer is kind of a father figure for Matthias. And Matthias aspires for a kind of adventure. So Abbot Mortimer teaches him a little bit more about the nature of Martin the Warrior and what being a Redwall Mouse is really all about, which is a kind of charity and brotherhood with the people around you or the, the creatures around you. Um, I love the kind of tenderness that we see from Abbot Mortimer and the way that he thinks paternally about Matthias in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And we get a, a better glimpse as to the establishment of the Redwall Abbey in just a few chapters, but it's very clear from the, the beginning that there's a structure and order to the Abbey. And um, that that's through Abbot Mortimer as well. You can kind of see that in their relationship, there's, there's a structure as, as Matthias is learning, um, uh, in the abbey um and as you said he's kind of like a father figure to him yeah chapter two introduces us to the book's major villain Clooney the scourge who is a giant rat with a whip-like tail we get all kinds of crazy information about Clooney in this chapter which really just insinuates he's a very big rat he's very mean and people are quite scared of him. Yeah, he's there's a lot of kind of ambiguity about Clooney as well. Um, he's described as a Portuguese rat, which um, this kind of opens up the biggest question in Redwall. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if we want to tackle it yet. We might want to wait a few chapters to talk a little bit more about that. But he it is a big rat that jumped from a ship to shore, which also brings up another big question in Redwall. <laughs> are there ships that are like sailing across the sea and the yeah. mice are, are part of that? This is kind of an introduction to a bigger lore question that I think comes in much later books. Um, but there's kind of this insinuation that there's Moss Flower Wood, which is where all of our action takes place in this particular novel and Moss flower wood is kind of like its own little realm. And the, the insinuation is that a lot of the vermin kind of come from some far off place. And uh, in later books, there is like a whole other side of the world that Moss flower just never interacts with. And so there are like Corsairs and, and, vermin pi <clears throat> excuse me vermin pirates that just run around these open seas and then every once in a while they come to shore and they kind of wreak havoc in moss flower 
but in this particular book, we don't really know exactly where in the world Moss Flower is situated. Is it part of the human world? Is it not? And I think that's one of the insinuations is Clooney's a Portuguese rat. So it's like Moss Flower must be located somewhere, probably in Europe. Um, right. But, yep. but that goes away in later books. In later books, we don't see any more reference to the outside world. Moss Flower really is like its own little space in its own fantastic land. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up because um, even the map for Redwall itself only focuses on the Abbey and the surrounding countryside. We're really the book only really takes place in four major set pieces: um, the Abbey itself, Saint Ninian's Church, the Mossflower Woods, and the Quarry. And so it's it's kind of interesting that Jake's talks about a wider country essentially when the book itself is not really set in any kind of location um i assume that this is a way to kind of build up the mythology or the myth of Clooney himself and is a way to describe that he's so much different than the native mice or animals that are in moss uh moss flower woods um but it it is definitely the most jarring uh and i don't know i was kind of confused about it in my first read it, it was a it was a confusing introduction um it kind of took me out of the world a little bit I, I won't lie with that uh with that description yeah i think a part of that is because this book was never truly intended to be like a big long series i think it was originally written as just a one-off and then it became popular and so parts of the lore really started to retroactively you know kind of come together but for the most part in this second chapter we get to know Clooney a bit. He's just a big bad rat, and he really wants to come for Redwall. That's, or or really just Mossflower in general. He just wants to spread his little empire as far as he can get it. Yeah, and Jake does a good job of like um, kind of mirroring Clooney's um, introduction to Matthias's, where like Clooney uh, even says that he would want to eat the mice that are um, kind of off the road in, uh, well, it's not in Mossflower Woods, but it, in that general area. So it's very different than Matthias, who's fitting into the structure of this order and trying to learn. And then Clooney is just barreling in wanting to eat mice, which I thought was really disturbing. But uh, I love Clooney. We'll talk more about Clooney throughout this whole book. Uh, and you'll you'll just learn more and more about how much I love Clooney. Yeah, there's so much more. To, to explore about Clooney for sure. It's fun that you notice the parallels that Jake sets up between Matthias and Clooney because the book itself kind of unfolds in this parallel narrative where we see Matthias's mission to really kind of defeat Clooney and Clooney's mission to try to infiltrate Redwall. And, and even the structure of the book mirrors uh, what's going on in the two camps by kind of dividing their chapters up, as we'll see. Because in chapter three, we return back to Redwall and we get more of the sense of what life in Redwall is really all about. I think that's what this chapter does. We see a feast for Abbot Mortimer as he celebrates his, uh, what not his jubilation, but 
do you remember which year or which season it is that that they're celebrating for Abbott and Mortimer? Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. Is it his silver anniversary or? So Abbott Mortimer is celebrating one of his anniversaries. He's been with the Abbey for quite a bit of time. And as they prepare the feast, we're introduced to a whole bunch of the rest of the Redwall cast. We get to meet Cornflower, Friar Hugo, Constance Badger, Brother Alf, the Church Mouse twins, Tim and Tess, and the other Church Mouse family, John and his wife, along with Ambrose Spike, who is a hedgehog, and Winifred the Otter. I love this chapter because, first off, it's our first real big feast chapter, which if you come to know this series, you know that feast chapters feature quite prominently in these books. We can talk about why Brian Jakes incorporated so much food in his storytelling, but I think it's really great to see the harmonious living of these creatures together in Redwall and all of the many different kinds of creatures that reside there. Um, I think in this story, of course, we have the, the mice and we have otters. We have a badger. We have a hedgehog. And I think that's all of them in this particular chapter that we're introduced to. Yeah, Jake's does a great job of introducing the other kind of cast of characters through uh, and the other uh, Mossflower Woods animals um, and their importance in their roles in the Abbey. Like we learned that Constance the Badger um, goes and catches a grayling and brings it in to feed the Abbey. Um, she's the only one that, that can do that. So that kind of plays into her size as an animal comp uh, compared yeah. to everyone else. Um, which we'll talk way more about that later, because that's that's a pretty big thing in the Redwall series, especially um, how uh, Jake's kind of leans into that um, in, in the later books. Uh, we also learn like about the otters and how the otters are kind of the entertainers for um, the group and um, everyone kind of celebrates the, the otters as they come in. So I, yeah. I really love this chapter. I think out of the first three, this is probably my favorite only because we start to get a bigger glimpse into the world of Redwall and it's through these, these animals. It, it's really exciting. Yeah. There's so much kind of harmony that goes on here and we do get to sense some of what I'm going to call like the, the kind of racial characteristics of these different species of animals in this Redwall world. Um, the otters are absolutely the anglers. You know, they're kind of like the dockmen, if you will, um, that handle most of the seafaring or the waterworks, you know, that sort of thing. And we see that the mice are really all about kind of hospitality. The badger's about um, strength and kind of this uh, maternal um, ferocity, I think. Yeah, and it kind of fits into even some um, fantasy tropes as well. Like the the badgers um, definitely read to me like dwarves. Like they kind of are the powerhouses. The um, they're they're headstrong. Like that's kind of how it reads. And like the otters read a little bit more like elves. Like some of those uh, yeah. tropes that you may be familiar with, like uh, from Lord of the Rings, for example. I think you can start to see those characters or those archetypes kind of played out through these animals. Yeah. 
I always felt like the Badgers were more the Giants. And sure, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. like the the moles were really kind of the dwarves because oh, they're, yeah, that's like that's a way better comparison. Yeah, the moles are yeah. definitely. But but you're totally right. I mean, there's a lot of kind of uh, fantasy archetyping being done with the characters in this book, and it juxtaposes really neatly with the bad guys in chapter four, because we move from the feast in chapter four to. Uh, Clooney the Scourge as he continues his journey towards Redwall and he kills his first henchman Skullface. So Clooney has commandeered uh, a horse and buggy and is charging along toward Redwall. I don't think he really knows that he's going to Redwall yet, except that he like passes a signpost that suggests that Redwall is further up the road. And I think he uh, just straight up kills one of his henchmen. He tells uh, the henchman to jump on the horse to get it to keep going. And the horse bucks the rat off and is like crunched beneath the wheels of this rolling cart. So absolutely brutal death as well. Oh, it's, It's horrifying. I mean, crushed by a horse cart. Yeah, I was really shocked in my reread of this um, or the second time reading this simply because I never noticed how different uh, going from the introduction of the feast to just absolutely how brutally bad this death happens just shows how different these animals are. And um, just is that parallel between the sanctity and uh, the safety of the Abbey versus this brutal world that Clooney is just ruling through. So uh, yeah, we also learn about the horse. I have a lot to say about the horse. I'm <laughs> going to save that until chapter six, because I think we do need to talk about more about scale, but let's wait until we get there. Yeah. I think chapter six is the right conversation to have or right time to have that conversation. So in chapter five, we return back to the Abbey after the feast Matthias is tasked with escorting the church mouse family back to St. Ninian's. But along the way, they discover Clooney's army on their march toward Redwall. We also very briefly get an introduction to another major character in this uh, book called, uh, that character is called Methuselah. He is the Abbey recorder. But it's really interesting. Again, we see the juxtaposition between the charity of Redwall and the just utter horror of Clooney. Um, So Matthias is asked along with Constance, the badger to escort the church mouse family back to St. Ninian's, which is where that particular family lives. Redwall um, is a place, a, a kind of a safe haven. And we get the sense that they actually provide a lot of, food and security to the local countryside, um, the church mice being some of them. It's alluded to that the church mice are like impoverished, like they live in poverty, which is interesting because there's not a lot that's said about trade or commerce in these books. No, or treasure um, besides a legendary artifact. But yeah, you're right. There's not a whole lot of discussion of that. So the introduction of 
um, the, the church mice being impoverished, it, I think is just a play on the sympathy for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. But we do get to see them um, kind of uh, take off towards St. Ninians. We get a little bit more of a picture of who these characters are in relationship to another. Uh, for example, Matthias is really sweet on cornflower. Um, and there's kind of this budding romance between the two of them. They kind of play um, surrogate mom and dad games with the church mice twins um, who are like babies. So you, you, you begin to see, you know, kind of some of the dynamic that they're growing into that they're kind of being brought up, you know, to kind of fill these roles, uh, especially Cornflower, who we see throughout the book is really being um, brought up to be a sort of like homemaker kind of character I think it's important to note that because we are going to have a discussion about some of the gender roles when we do kind of a big discussion at the end of this novel. Um, but, you know, we'll kind of put a pin in it right now um, as we continue through, you know, talking about the book. Yeah, absolutely. In chapter five, um, we start to see the the parallels or the mirroring between this the safety of um, the Abbey versus Clooney's just uh, kind of rabid barreling towards Redwall. Um, and the fact that like uh, Matthias and Cornflower and the church mice family are, are uh, and Constance who's pulling the, the cart, um, <laughs> they're traveling. Um, they're, they're taking the church mice back to St. Ninian's and they see Clooney barreling down the road with the, the horse and buggy. And I feel like it, it really um, is, way more apparent now the parallels of how we're supposed to see that something is going to completely disrupt the life of these um, yeah. gentle woodland creatures in <laughs> not very much time. It's also interesting that they immediately know that they're that, that Clooney and the rest of the rats are, are dangerous. They like yeah. sense mm -hmm. the danger coming. And this is a, that's a really good point because we also see Matthias have the first change in the fact that he's equipped with a stick. And then after he sees Clooney, he goes on the rear guard for the, the cart. It's um, kind of fascinating how quickly he changes from being this inept um, mouse whose flip flops are too big. Even Mortimer himself mentions just a few paragraphs before, like, man, we got to get that guy some better flip flops because he, he's just flopping around to now he's acting as a defender um, after seeing the car. And I just also think that's kind of uh, clever from Jake's to be able to include yeah. these kind of tidbits uh, as we see the, the warrior journey start to happen through Matthias. Yeah, I definitely want to save some discussion of Matthias and his kind of quick, kind of rapid change into the warrior mouse um, that this book is really about. I, I want to have that discussion, but I think it's, it would be more appropriate to have that discussion uh, later on down the line. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the this first book, The Wall, um, there's some little hints to it, but we'll see a lot more of it in book two and three. Yeah. In chapter six, Clooney's horse crashes the cart near St. Ninian's, leaving several rats dead. Clooney plans to scout out the region to swell his ranks, 
with new vermin, and so he issues orders to occupy St. Ninian's. It's kind of the headquarters for his horde uh, in this area of Mossflower. The lack of remorse for the death of so many in his army, I think is, is really another eye-opener to just how bad this Clooney guy really is. Absolutely. I will be honest that I was more distracted by the horse than, than the actual accident because this is the first introduction of, <laughs> in my opinion, the biggest um, hole in the this uh, in uh, Brian Jake's writing for Redwall is this scale makes no sense at all because he runs into <laughs> with the horse. Um, this horse is uh, perceived to be large enough that a rat can jump on the back of it and bite it and get bucked off. So the rat is considered to be like a pest to this horse. However, um, the the car crashes against the side of the the um, uh, the church, St. Ninian's, and it leaves us to wonder how big is this church and how big is this space that these um, these woodland creatures are interacting with? Are these human sized? Are these uh, you know sized to them? Are they more um, poised within these? Like we would be it 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 the the question of scale couldn't be more apparent with this chapter. And I could not get this out of my mind after I was reading this. I just did not understand <laughs> at all how the scale of this works. I don't, I don't think we ever get an answer as to what the scale is supposed to be. Because I, I think that the creatures are scaled to one another appropriately. Like the grayling was two pounds right. mm -hmm. in the feast. And they say that that's enough to feed the entire abbey for weeks. So, I mean, like that's two pounds is a pretty standard size for a grayling, I guess. Maybe it's a little big. I don't know. But it's only two pounds. And so you figure, you know, there's a badger involved. There are a bunch of mice. The badger's the only one that's big enough to come pick up this grayling. There's a a full-blown horse, which we are, are to presume is a giant horse. Huge, yeah. And well, again, and, yeah, and, and the, hay with cart, the hay cart must be large enough to carry 400 rats. Yes. So the I had, I had to wonder, is this horse big enough to just completely trample the, the church? But then we learned that the, the cart crashed into the church, um, which killed all the, the rats in Clooney's horde. Um, however, it was not enough to, um, like the, the, the card itself was destroyed, not the church. So it, right. it's very bizarre. I, I don't, we don't really see too much of this going on. Um, and it, to me, it seems more apparent in book one. Um, but I have mm -hmm. to bring it up because I think it's one of the, um, biggest detractors for this series is that this yeah. first book really struggles with the scale of, yeah. um, the to, world of Redwall. To Jake's credit i do think that the later books correct these oversights pretty well um but it it really does stand out as kind of an anachronism in this first book i think Absolutely. for me i understood that the scale was generally pretty normal like i think that the scale is set at a human world and the creatures are all their respective sizes to what humans would be and so the dwellings excuse me, that they live in, 
these dwellings are probably human-sized dwellings, um, but are inhabited by woodland creatures because for some reason or another, humans just aren't otherwise around. But this is the only time, I think, in the whole series that this really is a big issue, the issue of scale. I think it corrects itself in later entries. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I could sit here all night and talk talk about this because I have lots of thoughts about it. But I could only <laughs> move on in the book by letting that go uh, and just kind of appreciating. Yeah. You just you do. Yeah, just kind of appreciating what is uh, what's present, I guess, with these first few chapters. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's definitely. Uh, I'm really curious to talk more about this in a review episode and see what what our uh, panel of friends have to say about it because I can't be the only one that was bugged by this, but uh, we'll find out. Yeah, you do have to just let it go. Like, eventually you just let it go and it's fine. All the listeners are screaming, let it go, just let it go. Let's move on to chapter seven. <laughs> so chapter seven, Constance and Matthias hold a meeting with Abbey members to talk about Clooney's threat to Mossflower. There's some contention about whether or not it even was Clooney. People believe that Clooney is just a creature from their bedtime stories or the things that you say to kids to scare them. And it's Methuselah who comes up to recount all of the reports of Clooney's past deeds. And Matthias is cited as an authority in how many rats were with Clooney. It's really interesting to see Matthias step up in this chapter to really start to speak to the problems that Clooney represents and the need for Redwall to take it seriously. Yeah, again, this kind of plays into his hero journey. Um, but we we know so little about Matthias um, in these first few chapters, and we get we get a good sense of his morality um, in this stand that he has, kind of against um, the, the uh, Abbot Mortimer, because he's saying, "Well, I I know what I saw, and there's a real threat that's out there. This isn't some kind of boogeyman. This is something that that we should be prepared for." And Matthias definitely steps up. We see a very early glimpse of Matthias as being kind of a little bit too eager for violence, a little bit too eager. Yeah, for like a little hot headed or and in a way. Yeah. And and the other creatures of Redwall, especially the Abbot, really try to talk him down from that and remind him what being a Redwall mouse is really about. And that tension, I think, stays through much of the book where Matthias is just a little bit too ready to jump to action. And his version of action is to prepare for violence. And so one of the overarching themes, I think, of this book is really trying to understand when is violent action defensible? And when is it not? Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't hadn't thought about that, but yeah, there's a lot of um, we've been seeing the the parallels between um, the Abbey and Clooney's uh, attack, I guess is what you could call it. Um, but now we're starting to see a lot of similarities between the two of them, aren't we? Yeah, I think so, and that makes Chapter Eight all the more fun because here Clooney is now settled into Saint Ninian's. 
and he has a nightmare about a cloaked mouse with a sword. He's forced to reflect on the many terrors he's wrought in his time. And when he wakes up, he discovers that his army is low on rations, but has swelled by about another hundred bodies. So I think by now his horde is about 500. Yeah, and I um, I really love this chapter because it's the first time that we really get a glimpse. Well, maybe not the first time because we have Methuselah talking about um, like his ability to talk to any animal or any creature, um, which is kind of like a soft magic, I guess. But this is the real time that we see any magic within Redwall because this nightmare is very mm-hmm. clearly not just a nightmare. This is a foreshadowing. Um, this is uh, there's a lot of uh, messaging that's in this nightmare. We see some more nightmares with, with, from kind of Clooney's perspective. Um, but it's very clear that this is something a little bit more magical. This is something that's different than just a bad dream. Um, there's some foreshadowing, some fate that's involved with these visions that Clooney has in this sleep. I think, too, it reminds us that Clooney knows and understands that what he has done is wrong. He realizes that his path is the path of evil. And I think what sets him apart as a villain is his ability to recognize that what he does is cruel and wrong, and yet he still chooses to do it anyway. That's what real villainy Mm -hmm. is, I think. Not just for this book, but I think for Jake's too. It's the constant kind of choice of doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, you know, for selfish reasons, what have you again, stands in a real contrast to the very conversation that Matthias was having with Abbot Mortimer about what is good, what is, um, what is charity, what is really the, the action that uh, a charitable, charitable person would take, uh, even when confronted with deep wrong. Yeah, it's a great point and not something that I had initially recognized the first time reading it. Um, I do have to kind of put myself in the position of of like, I guess, a reminder that these books are uh, geared towards kids and that this blatant bad guy, like the villain chooses to be evil. um, And there's not a whole lot of nuance on that is to help kids kind of understand those archetypes or help to understand, you know, that a little bit better. Um, but I do think that it fits in Clooney's character. Like he's just ruthlessly bad. And the fact that he has these visions, like you say, and he's aware of his decisions ultimately leading to his own doom. Uh, he just decides to keep, keep going with it. So yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. And I can appreciate the characterization that Jake's puts into Clooney. Um, and I think it just gets better and better over time. Yeah, I totally agree. So in chapter nine, Redwall buckles down for the defense of the Abbey as Clooney's army takes aim at Redwall. Remember, Clooney and his horde is really low on resources. And so they see Redwall as a place that is rich with the resources that they want. So Clooney's scout tries to gain entry to Redwall under a ruse but fails to enter as they kind of sense that he's not being entirely truthful. Matthias suggests a new defensive strategy for the Abbey, and the abbot finally makes the call 
to Moss Flower to find shelter in the Abbey from Clooney. So they sound the giant Joseph bell, which is uh, another very important symbolic presence in the series, the Joseph bell. The lore of that particular bell will deepen in future books. But for now, it's clear that Redwall has the reputation for being a sanctuary and shelter for all of the surrounding area of Moss Flower. That's right. It's kind of like a safe haven for all the moss flower creatures. And I really love the inclusion of the bell. We see the bell a lot in this first book. And um, yeah. I, I I think that there's a lot of symbolism, as you said, with the bell. I think that being Americans and living in the Midwest, <laughs> we don't really have a great appreciation for things like a church bell or, or what a church bell signifies. Yeah. But um, we live in, well, sorry, I live in Tornado Alley. And so um, I know that if the tornado sirens go off i need to find shelter and i can trust what that signal is and i think that that is very clear in this as well like i think that you you can appreciate um what the abbey is in this area um and the important resource it is and to your point clooney really wants that like he wants to have yeah. like he's eyeballing everything in this in the abbey when he's looking around like he's dreaming up the ramparts and how he's going to use those in great sieges like he is looking at this place like his next fortress um for conquest not for protection yeah yeah, that's a great point. Again, kind of building the parallel between how these two different places kind of view resources and view the, the space around them. So in chapter 10, Clooney and his lieutenant Red Tooth, well, really, I think Red Tooth is his second in command here. Uh, but Clooney and Red Tooth request parlay with Abbot Mortimer. Clooney demands during this parlay that the Abbey surrender entirely to his army, but Matthias, Constance, and Mortimer deny the demands and escort Clooney out of the Abbey. Along the way, Clooney spies the tapestry of Martin the Warrior that hangs in the Great Hall of Redwall and realizes that Martin is the mouse from his nightmares. Yeah, some really important uh, foreshadowing there at the end. Uh, kind of a reveal. You probably knew it when you read it the first time. But yeah, he sees the warrior mouse and the tapestry, Martin the Warrior, as the warrior in his, his nightmares. We also learned something really important about um, Matthias, where Clooney scares, intentionally tries to scare all of the uh, church mice or the, the animals within the abbey. And Matthias is the only one that doesn't jump. And um, he kind of does this as a power play. Well, sorry, Clooney does this as a power play. But I love the fact that Matthias doesn't fall for it. He is kind of Clooney's foil. And we see that so early with this small interaction between the two. Yeah, it's also interesting how clever the Abbey mice really are. Like they know Clooney's reputation. They tell him to tie his tail, which is oftentimes used as <laughs> yeah. a whip. You know, around his waist to keep him from using it as a weapon. Yeah, and, and great it just point. Goes, yeah, some of the ingenuity in kind of thinking through their situation. Um, I really love this chapter because of, of the way that it, it finally brings, you know, these two worlds together and then shows us the collision. And that conflict is everything the book is all about for the, the next 
you know, 300 pages. Or Absolutely. Whatever. Yeah, it's really the tipping point. Well, before we jump into chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 11, let's take a quick break and then we'll we'll get going with the next chapter. Trevor, you want to take us through chapter 11? So in chapter 11, Ambrose Spike, the hedgehog, is found unconscious outside of the abbey walls. And the four mole plans a rescue. I think this is the first time we see the moles, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. That Ambrose recovers from his serious wounds inside the abbey after the rescue attempt, and he explains that the Vole family has been captured by Clooney. The Vole family was introduced during the chapter with um, the feast. Uh, and we get the sense that there are a couple of members of the Vole family um, that are pretty important to Redwall. Colin Vole is one of them. Oh, and uh, Colin Vole is he's just a minor character, but... I get the sense that he was positioned to kind of be like a Matthias counterpart, like whereas Matthias is really brave and ambitious and um, he's, uh, you know, quite ethical. You know, Colin is kind of the weaselly sniveling, you know, kind of the cry backbiting yep. character. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a, a baby. Yeah, I am so disappointed that the character that uh, I'm not named after, but we share the same name, is one of the puniest, most whiny characters in the book. Uh, if you listen to our episode zero, you'll know that uh, Trevor kind of teased me uh, when we were kids about uh, Colin being one of the most insufferable characters in the book. Uh, and I that really bugged me because there's a there's a lot of cool names and there's some, you know, a proper classical English names in this book. And just so happens <laughs> right. Colin is this one of this annoying character. So. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, Matthias confers with Martin's image after the kidnapping about what he should do next. And Cornflower comes forward to sponsor Matthias's warrior spirit. Um, this is really the moment I think that Matthias decides that he will symbolically become this generation's Martin the Warrior. Yeah, and the I point out that that Cornflower sponsors him by giving her giving him a token of of kind of her. Because this is a, a very classical trope in medieval romances, right? You have the hero and the hero must exchange a token for his lady because that kind of sponsorship is really what I think kind of christens him. It's, it's the the distillation of the symbol of his chivalry. The knight's um, quest. And in yeah, case, exactly. Yeah. In this case, it's it's his identity as, you know, the warrior mouse of Redwall. Yeah, and that's a that's a really good point. I love this interaction between Matthias and Cornflower, and um, this is one of the most quoted parts of the book. Um, it's such a beautiful part in the book where she's saying that she sees great things in him. Um, it really plays into a lot of fantasy trips, as you mentioned, uh, but it really plays up the fate of Matthias, that he is destined to be a great warrior, and that really spurs Matthias into change. It's a very, very beautiful moment. 
Um, I will say in this chapter, I love the introduction, the introduction of uh, Spike. Well, we kind of saw him in the feast earlier, but uh, Spike yeah. is such a cool character, and uh, <laughs> he's he, he has such a relaxed nature compared to the rest of the animals. Uh, partly because all he wants to do is sample some October nut brown ale, which sounds delicious. <laughs> it sounds great, but it also he really just does want to drink like he's just a fat happy hedgehog yeah he, he just, just likes to drink ale yeah he just loves his ale and he really wants to get a key to the cellar and we kind of see later in tongue-in-cheek <laughs> why no one wants to give him a key uh, but i also think this plays into his kind of animal nature because uh, he talks about how he survived this uh, attack in the woods was because he rolled up into a ball and he kind of felt people poking him um, and suffered a minor injury. However, he basically was left untouched because he's a hedgehog. He put, you know, rolled up into a ball and put up his defenses. And I think that kind of plays into his reaction to what's going on. He's most concerned about just getting some ale because he himself is kind of a protected creature. It's kind of interesting to see this uh, characterization through, through Spike. Mm. That's really interesting. I, I'm glad you brought that up. So in chapter 12, Clooney finally issues an order to his henchman Shadow to sneak into the Abbey and steal the tapestry of Martin the Warrior and return it to Clooney. Uh, this is one of many different ploys that Clooney kind of takes to try to demoralize Redwall and its defenders. But it also introduces, I think, for me, one of the most memorable one-off villains of uh, this novel, which is Shadow, this pitch-black ferret um, who's just like a champion at climbing. He's like a, an assassin kind of ninja character um, who only shows up for like three chapters. <laughs> yeah, spoiler for what's ahead. But yeah, he's described as maybe a rat but also weasel so we're not actually sure exactly what it is you say ferret which i think is pretty fitting but he has no markings and is an all black fur so he's really set apart from any of the other henchmen that we learned from Clooney. uh it's really his introduction is kind of this whole chapter too so uh he's a very very cool character um if you follow our our instagram at books uh books and badgers um that's books with an N badgers. Um, I actually posted a photo that someone drew of Clo of, uh, of shadow and I love it. It's so cool. Uh, you should go there and check it out. This is kind of a characteristic of, I think Brian Jakes is writing because he has so, there are so many vermin that show up and they're given really creative names. And I think the names are really what set them apart. But if it's not a name, it's like a physical characteristic that comes to, to represent, I think, um, iconically, you know, the kind of thing that these creatures are supposed to represent. So Shadow is obviously named after something very dark. He's just a ninja assassin rat or weasel or ferret or whatever he is. Um, and that's that. Like, that's his whole characterization. He's just an assassin painted pitch black. Um, and there's just something that I love about like that kind of one dimensional little fantasy trope. Uh, it just tickles my brain and stuff that I really enjoy. Yeah. And I would characterize shadow as a memorable, um, 
villain henchman i don't know what we want to call him but uh i guess henchman yeah it really has to do with the fact of how he's introduced yeah he's he is um we'll talk more about what our um uh what are what are we calling them the uh, memorable, memorable side characters, characters. Yeah. yeah we have the memorable memorable side characters and our memorable vermin he's definitely on that vermin list yeah for sure so in chapter 13 the abbey begins to prepare for a long siege matthias and constance begin training guards in the use of staves for defense matthias worries about their chances to defeat Clooney, and he decides to begin searching for Martin's ancient sword. He meets up with Methuselah, who reveals that a long time ago, the Sparrowhawks living in, oh, I'm sorry, not Sparrowhawks, the Sparrows, um, living on the roof of the Abbey, stole a treasure from the mice, but they wouldn't say what the treasure was. This is our first little clue as to whatever happened to martin the warrior's sword which takes up a lot of space in this book yes it does all of book two is essentially this quest for the sword so we'll talk way more about that but this is the first introduction to that and uh, i think uh trevor your confusion was that it's uh, i think that he re uh rehabilitates a hawk and the hawk tells him this about the sparrows so that's where the kind of sparrow hawk mix came up uh, but yeah, this, I think it's really interesting how he talks about the sparrows because they're almost known to be just these wild, savage animals that fight among them um, among themselves, <laughs> and that's all we get from it. So it's it's kind of interesting. We get this brief introduction to the sparrows, and so we we know okay, there's sparrows that are in this world, um, and they are indirectly related to the abbey, and we'll learn about more about that a little later on. Yeah, the sparrows feature really prominently later in the book. I also think it's interesting, though, because for all of the different creatures that were introduced to in this Redwall novel, birds don't feature in the series very prominently thereafter. No. Mm -mm. I only think I remember one other book that makes reference to birds. And um, I think there's one bird character who shows up in a later book but otherwise, the birds are mostly forgotten after this book. So this is the only real opportunity we get to get a sense of there being other kinds of wildlife out there that regularly interact with Redwall. Yeah, and I think the um, I think the sparrows introduce a really difficult narrative to, uh, or they they poise themselves to be difficult to kind of write around from. Um, Jake's perspective. I imagine that he doesn't include them more mm -hmm. just because of how in our real world sparrows and mice interact that that is kind of like, I don't know, a hole in the world building that it was better just to fill without with, with absence with them not being around. Um, of course, yeah. I'm not Brian Jake, so I can't I can't tell you if that's how he actually felt. And I did absolutely no research. If that's the case. But I imagine that <laughs> there's just a maybe that provided um, too much of a a roadblock in in exploring this world that that's why they're not yeah so in chapter 14 shadow finally breaks into the abbey under cover of night to steal the martin tapestry matthias is forewarned of the theft by a vision and discovers shadow in the act matthias and constance pursue shadow in a quick fight 
but Shadow injures Mr. Field Mouse grievously as he's trying to escape and then just narrowly manages to make it to the walls of the abbey where he plummets to his death. Clooney retrieves the tapestry from Shadow's corpse. Man, Shadow, we barely got to know you. This <laughs> Barely knew him and then he's already gone. But he already sets up a really great kind of menace here. We, we see his climbing gear. That is an important component to Matthias's journey later on because Matthias kind of, um, he finds out through a vision from Martin, the warrior, that this tapestry is being stolen yeah. and he rushes down to try to find out what's going on. And there's a pretty sh savage fight between him and Shadow, <laughs> where Shadow knocks him unconscious. Yeah, knocks him um, out. He has he yeah knocks him out um, as they they kind of scuffle. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy to see this fight happen in the Abbey. This is our real first sense of any kind of uh, I don't know violence, if you want to say, within the Abbey. Um, Mister Fieldmouse yeah. gets shanked essentially, <laughs> like he gets he slashed, does. he gets stabbed. <laughs> which i i read this the first time and i was like man this is brutal i just cannot believe mr Fieldmouse just got done dirty that way like you know shatter just runs by and stabs him essentially yeah this is one of the things that i think i love the most about these redwall books is that Jake's does set up for us pretty serious stakes for the characters. Yeah. We see Ambrose Spike, who is wounded earlier. And even though he kind of laughs it off, this is a real grievous wound, not just to the Abbey because uh, the Martin tapestry is stolen, but to a character that we already know, like he's the sympathy character, right? He's the one that we want to kind of protect. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he gets stabbed and and nearly dies. And he's relatively innocent as well. It's just in the pursuit that sh the route that kind of shadows running out of the Abbey that that Mr. Fieldmouse is there. And that's why he gets attacked. Matthias intentionally yeah. tried to tackle shadow. And so and they got in the scuffle. But Mr. Fieldmouse yeah. is just a bystander. And I think I to your point, I think that's incredibly um, I think that's an incredible detail that Jake's adds to to this first story that really helps to kind of bring a gravity of um, of life to this first book. Like, I really think that we learn uh, that this people. Well, we know that animals can die because one died in like chapter two. Or whatever. Right. But we we learn that really no one's safe in this world. Like there there is life and death here. Um, and I think that's also yeah. present with Shadow. I didn't really think Shadow was going to die here. I thought he was in for the, the long haul. <laughs> and uh, man, I'm so I'm really sad to see him go. Uh, one last thing for me, I love this soft magic that we start to see a little bit more with the tapestry uh, or Martin yes. more accurately interacting with Matthias. He tells him, hey, I'm something's happening to me. You need to go and investigate. And um, that's not really explained. Jake's doesn't really take the time to talk about that at all. It just kind of happens and unfolds this chase, the the foiling of the heist, if you will, with the with the tapestry. Um, one of my favorite chapters in this first book. I absolutely love it. Oh yeah, hands down. Funnily enough, the appearance of Martin the Warrior in dreams and prophecy becomes a pretty regular staple of the soft magic of Redwall. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'm not I'm not too familiar with that, but I'm excited to learn uh, more about it. It'll be interesting. Books. Yeah, it'll be interesting to revisit it with you. So in chapter 15, the Abbey is reeling from the theft of the Martin tapestry, but Matthias urges them to not lose hope. Mr. Fieldmouse is set to recover from his wounds, and Matthias is certain that they will weather the coming siege. After the other creatures leave, Matthias takes up Shadow's climbing gear and sets off from the Abbey to St. Ninian's, where he hopes to recover the tapestry. Yeah, this uh, this is kind of the um, from the crest of the last uh, chapter where there's a lot of action. There's a lot of setting up that happens in this chapter. Uh, the first is that Matthias takes Shadow's gear and sets out. He he sets out on the mission to then retrieve the the tapestry that was um, intentionally supposed to broke the kind of break the. Uh, morale of the abbey and i love that he takes to this immediate decision to do this and he uses basically an enemy's gear to do so he equips himself to be able to <laughs> then leave the safety of the abbey to to recover this tapestry and shadow's knife plays a big part in this where we hear shadow's knife referenced never as matthias's knife it's always shadow's knife which i think is really interesting they oh, they track totally that right. throughout the entire book or jake's kind of tracks that it's a great detail i love it so in chapter 16, we transition back to Clooney, of course, and Clooney calls together his horde and prepares the march on Redwall. And he fixes the Martin tapestry to his banner as they march out. This is a really short chapter. Super but short. again, I, I think it speaks, you know, to... Um, just kind of Clooney's devious nature. Uh, he doesn't really care about what he has to sacrifice in order to get what he wants. And he's willing to use every symbolic evil in his, uh, you know, kind of uh, skill set in order to get what he wants. Yeah. And this is just a, a blatant um, disregard for what the Abbey holds um, sacred, which is that tapestry strapping it to the banner and using it as uh, I'm guessing like a war banner, right? Is him yeah. intentionally trying to strike fear into the Abbey, but then also disregarding all that they hold. Um, it's great characterization for Clooney. And we see that this is going to be a big part of the next few books. Yeah. So chapter 17, Matthias is on the way to St. Ninian's when he notices Ragear, uh, one of Clooney's rats. Ragear is a funny little character. He's in many of the other chapters as just kind of this uh, Clooney sycophant who really wants to climb the ranks of Clooney's uh, little army. But Matthias spots him uh, trying to follow Matthias, you know, to St. Ninian's and Ragir's like talking to himself um, in order to try to to hype up you know, <laughs> his kind of stature in Clooney's army. Yeah. Yeah, he's really giving himself a little bit of like a, a pep talk, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's like, like play acting in his head how it's going to go out when he catches Matthias. And uh, Matthias just 
slaps him in the face with a tree. <laughs> and he <laughs> tree ties branch. him to it. Yeah. And he ties him to the tree. Yeah. He, he bests him pretty readily uh, and then continues on. And just outside St. Ninian's, Matthias meets another standout side character, Basil Stag Hare, who instructs Matthias in the first few lessons of true guerrilla tactics. Oh, man, those those rabbit gorilla tactics, which the, is yeah, very the different. Duck and weave. Duck and <laughs> yeah. weave. I love it. Yeah. With Basil's help, Matthias sneaks into St. Ninian's and he assists the Vole family in escaping the old chapel. As they cross the commons back toward the abbey, Matthias accidentally leads his party of voles into a gathering of Clooney's rats. Yeah. So this is our first introduction to Basil Staghair. And I want to take a moment because Basil Staghair is the archetype for every hair we're ever going to meet in this 22 book series. Yeah, it's kind of a one-note one, one uh, archetype for sure. But Basil, um, I love Matthias interacting with Basil as the first creature really outside of the Abbey. And Basil treats his, I don't know, survival against these rats so much differently. And he kind of, uh, in a way, teaches Matthias a lot about being a warrior on his warrior journey. Um, he has yeah. a lot of respect for uh, other creatures. We learn about the, his reverence for stags, which is why he included that in his name. Uh, that's a yes. cool little uh, Lord nugget that's in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't really remember him too much. In my first reread, but this, uh, I mean, the first time I read the book, but in his reread, I love Basil. He's just such a cool character. And I, I really <laughs> adored this first interaction. Um, I, I also liked how uh, when Matthias is um, kind of not really playing with rag ear, but um, how he just kind of <laughs> lets him chase him and then hits him with the tree. It just shows how clever Matthias is. And um, we are seeing we're only 17 chapters in and we are seeing a completely different Matthias at this point. He is not timid. He is not tripping over himself. He's out thinking enemies and he's making new friends and he's learning new battle tactics. And he proves to be really canny at all of the lessons that Basil Staghair has to teach him. Uh, because we see Matthias really take to these guerrilla tactics incredibly well. And together with Basil, they kind of like divide up these rats, um, almost Looney Tunes style, <laughs> where Basil is just literally running circles around them. Um, and Matthias uses that to his advantage to rescue the voles, which I think, again, is a really important benchmark for his heroic journey here. Yeah, and you bring up a, a, a really good point. This is kind of a, a, a time of comedy, too. The, them fighting against these rats and, and Basil, um, the, just the way that he speaks and um, his, um, I don't know, lollygagging i don't really know what you call it but um yeah. it's it's really fun this is this is way more fun than what we just saw a few chapters back with um shadow shadows heist um this is almost a completely different tone than what, what we previously see uh ran into yeah definitely so chapter 18 Clooney finally begins the siege of red wall which leads to a pitched battle to try to get over the ramparts. 
Redwall defenders start to take some casualties here, but they give as much as they get. And the first wave of the siege is unsuccessful. And meanwhile, back in Mossflower Wood, Ragir is attacked and killed by the adder Asmodeus, who appears out in the woods. Asmodeus is a very important character to this book, a very important character, I think, to the whole series, not because he shows up in later books, but because he represents a very different kind of evil than Clooney, I think. Um, yeah, Asmodeus is uh, kind of the first big villain that we run into besides Clooney. He, his introduction seems way more mythical, magical than Clooney. Um, Clooney had like a legend about him, but Asmodeus is, um, it, he has this kind of enchantment that he does and uh, he repeats his own name, which is just so much different than the interactions with Clooney. There's so much to unpack about Asmodeus and I love his inclusion in this book because as we'll come to see later, he really is the oh, dragon yeah. of this fantasy lore. He's the the terrifying serpent um, that is just pure concentrated evil. Whereas Clooney is aware of the evil that he does as being wrong. I think Asmodeus is just evil incarnate. There's no choice. There's no reasoning. He simply exists to spread death. And I think that's a very different kind of evil than we see with Clooney. So they... The juxtaposition of these two very different characters, I think, um, sets up a lot of what I feel is kind of the classic. Yeah, and you nailed it. I didn't really think of it of him being like a dragon, Um, but yeah, that's a really great point. And um, I think that you're spot on with the fact that Asmodeus really doesn't care if he eats a vermin or a mouse. Like he goes after Ragir, you know, it's just food for him. It's not like he's on Clooney's side. It's not like he's on the Abbey's side. So he definitely poses a way different threat than what, um, what Clooney and his uh, ragtag uh, joke included uh, gang is doing. <laughs> yeah. So back to Clooney in chapter 18, Clooney plots a new attack after his first assault fails, and he plots to get over the ramparts via a plank. Uh, As he prepares this new angle, his squad informs him of a giant adder roaming the woods nearby. Clooney doesn't really seem to care very much about Asmodeus, which I think is also very interesting because whereas everyone else recognizes the danger that Asmodeus poses, Clooney just isn't really affected much by it. And it's another instance of him just being completely unsympathetic toward anyone in his organization because we know that Ragir is dead and quite brutally, grossly dead. Yeah, they uh, find his swollen he, body, right? Isn't that how they know? Swollen corpse. Yeah, <sighs> yeah it's, a, it's a brutal death for Ragir. And yeah, Clooney just doesn't seem to be bugged at all about it. I will say this is one thing that always kind of puzzled me is I don't know why he has a blatant disregard for Asmodeus because obviously he's a threat to any woodland creature uh, or moss flower creature. I, I think it speaks to his arrogance, for one. Um, because he just thinks himself so much better than, you know, an adder. 
And because it's not a direct obstacle to Redwall, you know, a direct obstacle to his goal, he just doesn't care. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I like that answer that he he probably just doesn't care that um, his goal is to take over the Abbey and Asmodeus doesn't fit into that at all. So why would he be bothered by him? Yeah. So in chapter 19, we cut back to Matthias, who continues to skirmish with Clooney's men in defense of the Vole family. And he's finally joined by Basil Staghair in the fight. Basil Stag suggests that Matthias leave the escort of the Voles to him and that Matthias should rush ahead to Redwall. Matthias takes his leave, but gets turned around in the fields and eventually falls asleep next to a stream. Now, I've thought a lot about this particular chapter and about Matthias and why I think Matthias gets turned around and then ends up just wandering off to fall asleep. And I kind of want to hear from you what you think about this part of his heroic development. Yeah, I, this is, this is, um, this one's difficult for me because I think that narratively this is kind of set up as an end to this first book. Um, it's a way to just kind of close out this first, uh, this first 20 chapters. And so, uh, Jake's needed some way to keep, um, Matthias in, uh, Mossflower Woods. And so I wondered if he just kind of <laughs> threw him in in that way. Um, but I also think that this has to do with kind of an awakening as an, as a warrior, like he kind of went out on his first quest and he recovered the Vol family and then he's traveling back and he kind of has this, I don't know, dream uh, next to the stream. And I think this is just kind of, uh, like the, the ending of his warrior quest. Um, I know that's not a super good answer, yeah. uh, but this is one that's tough. I don't, I don't really know besides um, the chapter break, why he throws them in here. Remind me to revisit this idea with you when we get to book three, because I think that what, I think that what Jake's is trying to do here is suggest something about a heroic cycle or a heroic action kind of the need for respite like the need for yeah rest. that's what i thought too mm-hmm. yeah and and he he inserts that a couple of times in the story like there is a there's a space and a need for rest in an adventure story um because it's not always just like pulse pounding action and i think that we see that in matthias but i've struggled a bit because i feel like he lacks the urgency or the the kind of picture of the urgency of his situation. And I don't know that that changes throughout the book as much as he is an adventurer. He's also put into positions where he seems to lose the scope of what he's trying to do. And he just kind of wanders off into this like weird period of rest that would seem inappropriate given the circumstances. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a mark at the end of the quest. Um, it, it, that's probably a better way than I was just trying to describe it. It 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 does feel um, similar to like the uh, the cadence of a knight's quest, right? Because you're right. There's like a, mm. a kind of a respite that happens in a knight's quest. Like you go, um, you have a battle, 
you have the recovery and then you venture off again. So maybe that's why it's included in here. I know that um, when we get into book two, there is re a reaction from Matthias when he wakes up, but I don't want to spoil yeah. that yet. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it, it is a good question. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up is that Basil is, I, I kind of got this confused with the last <laughs> time that we saw Basil, but when my Matthias comes out and calls for Basil and he's just ready to fight, like <laughs> he pops up and he is ready to go. I love it so much. I wish I had friends in my life that I could just call up and be like, Hey man, there's a fight going on. They go back to back and they just start fighting. It's such a cool friendship. Um, this is one of my favorite scenes in book one. Um, aside from, you know, the, the dipping and, and dodging when Basil just comes up and starts wrecking these fools. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's fun. It, this their di their dynamic is a lot of fun, and um, I kind of miss not catching that the first time. Like, I don't really recall Basil too much in the first book, but I can see why he is one of the memorable creatures, uh, one of the memorable memorable uh, side characters. I yeah. uh, love him so much in this chapter. I absolutely adore. I adore him through the whole book, but this chapter really for me was the standout uh, that made me love Basil just all the more. Yeah, we should have named the podcast Books and Hairs, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. So finally, we get to the last chapter of book one, chapter 20. Clooney's siege continues with even more casualties for the defenders of the Abbey. And Clooney's rats devise a terrible new weapon, even as Winifred and Formal craft their own version of a catapult. Constance proves to be the most dangerous defender of the ramparts. And meanwhile, Clooney plots his entry to Redwall over the ramparts, even as dissent begins to form in his personal squad. Methuselah, inside the abbey, discovers a new clue to the final resting place of Martin the Warrior's legendary sword. I think uh, that's yeah. the perfect kind of um transition to book two where book mm -hmm. one is all about setting up stakes and then we move into this big mystery it's like here's the fetch quest here's really the the quest that is going to make a man out of matthias yeah there's kind of two things that are happening in this chapter the first is that we see that this is a brutal siege the fact that um Clooney's henchmen are um taking they were taking off the spikes from St. Ninian's church yeah. and they were using them as these heavy artillery uh artillery javelins and it's cr it's like crashing down the abbey the abbey wall like it's crashing into it yeah it's, and it's like mortaring you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's kind of how it feels and i think jakes does a great job of just depicting how dangerous this siege is and then we kind of see the the abbey's retaliation um in the partnership with with the moles we also get to see a lot of uh, Constance's strength, which we get glimpses glimpses of it throughout book one, including her uh, catching the grayling, um, her pulling the cart. Um, we we also see when um, Clooney first comes in to tour the Abbey and and tries to um, parlay with uh, with um, 
Abbott uh, Mortimer, um, she lifts up the entire table that would take <laughs> ten, 12 mice to lift. And so we're really starting to see the Badger's strength in full force here. And it's very clear that she's just not a country bumpkin. She is a, a warrior for Abby, for the Abby. Um, this is why we named the podcast Books and Badgers. <laughs> I love the Badgers. I love this display of power from Constance. This is a really cool way to end out book one. Uh, and then as you mentioned, the uh, reveal of of the new clue for Martin's uh, Martin the Warrior's sword. Um, this is the cliffhanger to get you into book two um, yeah. for the rest the rest of this first book of Redwall. Uh, it is super cool. I love how this is framed up, and I couldn't wait to turn the chain uh, uh, turn the page to get into book two. Yeah, I think what I love about this chapter in terms of its conversation about you know kind of siege craft and warfare is that we, again, we see how absolutely brutal this is. And I think Constance is really set apart here, not just because of the strength that we see earlier in the chapter with the parlay, but I think that Constance kind of sets herself up as like a true bloodthirsty warrior that sets her apart from the other kind-natured characters that inhabit Redwall. She is yeah. not afraid of being equally brutal in the way that she treats these creatures. And we see that as a recurrent theme throughout the entire book. What sets badgers apart from the other peaceable woodland creatures is their bloodthirstiness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and their power of, of what they're able to do. Um, yeah, this is a really cool way to end out that second book and, oh, sorry, the first book and introduce into the second book. Um, I'm very excited to get into our next episode where we're going to talk more about book two. We'll actually cover all of book two in there, uh, and then, uh, we'll follow up with book three. So memorable side characters for me, I really felt like this book showed me Basil Staghair and Constance as two of the really the best um, kind of standout side characters. I love what they add to the entire book, you know, not just book one, but like the whole novel. Um, they take up just, you know, so much space, but really leave a lasting impression. Yeah, they're two great memorable side characters. And I, I think that they're a great inclusion to the cast that we start to see unfold for the rest of the book. Um, Basil and Constance, definitely great inclusions for that. For the most memorable vil uh, vermin, Raggear, Redtooth, Shadow, and Cheese Thief. These are all kind of the hierarchy of Clooney's men. Um, <laughs> I have to highlight in there Shadow being the top one. Um, I think that uh, Clooney can be included without really being said because he's kind of a, the star villain, but yeah, uh, the memorable vermin of all of them. I wish we got more time with shadow. I do wish we got more time with shadow because he is such a great little, you know, vermin character. I pointed out rag ear and uh, red tooth and cheese thief um, because they are kind of like the aspirants to Clooney, um, and his his um, 
his mantle and we see that their ambition to be like Clooney is their undoing every single time. Yeah. Uh, in this book, Ragier just gets, you know, he gets wrecked by Matthias because he's distracted by his ambitions, you know, his delusions of grandeur uh, and he's killed by Asmodeus. Um, and then we also get, uh, red tooth. He's going to feature later in another pretty grisly death. Yeah. Uh, we get a little bit more of red tooth. Yeah. Yeah. All three of them, their undoing is their desire to be like Clooney. Yeah. And we learned that it's kind of a revolving door to be Clooney's Lieutenant. Don't we? (laughs) (laughs) They don't hold the position very long, but, uh, yeah, love the memorable vermin. I think that we should add a new part of this list of characters um, uh, we'd be okay with not running into again. And I'm going to put Colin on that list. Uh, Colin the Ball. <laughs> he is just not fun to read. Oh, man. Um, I know that uh, our good friend William Sterling has a lot of jokes for me about Colin the Ball that we'll probably get to in our review episode. But It's funny because uh, he only has like two scenes in in like the whole novel and yet in both scenes, they're the worst like, scenes shut up colin like shut up yeah. man he is just he's not a fun fun bull i do want to pinpoint here like asmodeus um as a major villain i think a lot of the books have kind of two big villains there's like you know the major villain and then there's kind of a secondary villain Asmodeus is the secondary villain of this book, but that does not make him any less important to the plot. But I, Asmodeus is actually the name of like a real demon in Judeo-Islamic lore. Um, he's a, a figure that shows up in all kinds of old folklore, um, at least the name Asmodeus. And so mm-hmm. I felt it was a really interesting choice that Brian Jakes used that name for this serpent. Yeah. And we can see that told a lot with Jake's writings where he's taking a lot of influence from a lot of different, um, uh, different things. He takes a lot of influence through mythology, uh, including uh, the name. Um, um, uh, it's, uh, is it Methuselah, right? Is the name of yeah, the, Methuselah uh, is the oldest character in the Bible. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's cool to see him kind of pull that out, um, in some different aspects of the, the world building of Redwall. Um, I think that we should do a special episode where we dive into some of those things. Cause I'd love to do a little bit more research about, um, some of the names that he uses and maybe some, um, of the characteristics that we see with these names, um, and the characters that he kind of develops around them, because I'm sure there's some similarities between Asmodeus, um, his inspiration for Asmodeus and, uh, the snake that we see in Redwall. Um, so yeah, I think that'd be a great, great thing to do for, uh, yeah. maybe a bonus episode. Yeah. So that wraps up book one the wall uh i hope that you listener really enjoyed this discussion of you know some of the stuff that really stands out to us in this reread yeah and uh as trevor said thank you so much for listening um you can find us on instagram and threads at books and badgers um emphasis on that n books and badgers 
if you want to join in on the discussion, you can DM us on Instagram or uh, start a thread and we can have a conversation there. Uh, you can also email us any questions or corrections at booksnbadgers at gmail.com. Again, that's booksnbadgers at gmail.com. Um, if you love Trevor's voice, which a lot of people do, uh, you can find him on Slayhouse Presents, where he's got some really exciting interviews that are coming up. Um, and uh, stay tuned for episode two of season one. We're going to be releasing that a week from this episode. So we're going to um, jump into a same same format where we'll, we will walk through each chapter and do a little synopsis of the chapters. Um, and then we're going to continue our uh, fun characters, um, our memorable uh, characters and our uh, memorable vermins. Send us your most memorable character, side character, or your most memorable vermin from book one. As we go through this season, we want to hear from you who your favorites are uh, from this first novel in the series. Yes, I love that. Yep, send them in and we'll include them in a, in a future episode. All right, well, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time.